With schools due to open their doors again shortly, it's often not just a matter of gearing up for the academic year. Teachers and guidance counsellors will also be preparing to help teenagers dealing with the effects of drug abuse and binge drinking. But how effective are the drug and alcohol programs taught in schools? Our education correspondent Gail Woods compiled this report. Cannabis and other drugs, they feature regularly in a wide range of media. If you read the front page of the newspapers, um, it would appear that drugs is part of everyday life and even primary school kids are confronting drug dealers at the school gates. The New Zealand Drug Foundation's Executive Director Ross Bell says while the size of the problem is sometimes overstated, drugs nevertheless are a serious issue in this country. If, as is often cited, schools merely reflect what's happening in society, they could arguably be hotbeds of drug activity. When it comes to schools, cannabis is the illicit drug that stands out. Ross Bell says New Zealanders do like their dope. We know that um, across people's lifetime, half of New Zealand has tried cannabis. Um, and if we look at um, specific age groups, uh, we know that a quarter of 15 to 17 year olds have tried pot. So we know that um, cannabis is an illegal drug um, and it appears that it's quite easy for people of all ages to get their hands on it. One of the first lines of defence against illicit and legal substances are the drug and alcohol education programmes that almost all children encounter in the classroom. However, in a soon-to-be-published paper, a review of school-based programmes has found that they have little or no effect on longer-term substance use. Sally Caswell is the director of the Centre for Social and Health Outcomes Research and Evaluation at Massey University, which conducted the review. She says the programmes, which are used widely and attract considerable funding, are not effective in reducing alcohol or drug-related harm. The evaluations... And the, and the overview evaluation that we did did show very clearly that the way that these programs are taught in the school, they're taught very, very well, many of them. And if you think about it in terms of what the learning outcomes are, um, you know, what educational change is about, that is, pe kids know more at the end of the, of the teaching, then these, these programs are successful. And I think that's why they often get such good... Um, you know, good good feedback from the schools themselves and good feedback sometimes from some evaluations that are done which simply look at the way in which the, the teaching is going on. The difficulty is that these programmes are being put in there with much too big a, a goal set upon them, the goal of actually reducing harm, changing behaviour in a way that reduces harm, and that's a huge ask when you're looking at these deeply embedded behaviours and very uh, important behaviours for young people like alcohol and other drug use. And so, you know, it's a big gap from saying, well, we, we, we taught a programme really well to then saying, did it actually change behaviour? But I think the people teaching, you know, need to be acknowledged for the fact that they're doing a good job in, in, uh, in, in terms of teaching. It's just that it's, it's not going on to do the job that they're hoping it will do. 
At Kapiti College in Raumati, just north of Wellington, these senior students, Nick, Liv, Kiwa and Alex, recall lessons about drugs and alcohol. They showed us like, all, like, I suppose, like papers and drugs and just stuff in plastic bags. And then uh, you know, they had the dogs come in and then just talked about it. It was good, but I think at college it's more about peer pressure. Like, if you get into the wrong sort of group, like, in third form. They alert you in a way, but really I think it's down to the individual's choice. Same thing with, like, sex education. It's really your own choice at the end of the day. Because they told you about the effects and what they do to you, I learned a whole lot more about them. And because they say, you know, well, it makes you feel like you're in a different world or anything like that there, you sort of start to wonder, well, maybe now that I'm being told all this stuff, maybe is it worth trying it when I never did. But because I tell you all of these before, I'd never known what they'd actually do to do to me. And I just knew that I'd just be told that they were bad, sort of. In a way, like, it instigates you wanting to see if it's actually true what they were saying. Drug and alcohol education programs are a compulsory part of the health curriculum in schools. The Ministry of Education's curriculum manager, Mary Chamberlain, acknowledges the limitations of some approaches. The evidence from the international literature suggests that drug educations are effective if they're not one-off. So the one-off, you know, scare tactic, get somebody in and frighten the life out of them, might be okay as a part of a broader program, but on its own it's not effective. It needs The program needs to be relevant to the needs of the young people, so age-appropriate. It's got to have factual information about the impact of drugs, the social impact and the health impact. It's got to be interactive if it's going to make a difference and actually engage kids in things like role plays in terms of situations they might um, face. And building resilience is also a key factor in there. She says the notion that such programmes prompt experimentation isn't new. Some people do have a fear that if you teach about drugs or actually sexuality education is the same, then it will prompt experimentation. Um, The evidence doesn't say that. The evidence says that if you give kids factual information along with problem-solving skills and decision-making skills and negotiating skills, um, then they will use that information to make good decisions. But she admits measuring the effectiveness of such programmes over time is difficult. We're going to need to look at longer-term national indicators and there are going to be a whole lot of variables that are going to impact on that. So the school is one site. The school can actually measure um, the problem-solving skills and the social skills of their students, um, the way they're able to negotiate in different situations, and they're essentially qualitative measurements. But if we want those longer-term measurements over time, we have to look at our national statistics. We have to look at things like suspensions, exclusions, those statistics, what are they telling us? What are our uh, trends in drug use? And, and of course, the the impact of the school programme is just going to be one factor in there. One of the most widely used drug and alcohol education packages is the DARE programme run by the police. It's described as a programme designed to enable children and young people to avoid illegal drugs, to make sensible choices about their use of alcohol and other drugs, and to seek help when needed. The Police National Manager for Youth Services, Bill Harrison, is confident the DARE programme is on the right track. When you think about the research and the findings of the research that Sally and and co did, what you do see is most promising the, the broader spectrum and the wider community involvement that is actually the hallmark of the police programmes and, and the DARE programmes. But he also acknowledges the difficulties in evaluating the effectiveness of drug and alcohol education. It's like trying to answer the question of how many lives you save by undertaking a road policing operation. You'll never know, but we know that we are effective because the intervention logic that surrounds the programme and its delivery 
tells us that if we deliver it in this way to these sorts of young people, then we should see a, uh, an improvement in their, in their decision making. The issue, I guess, is one of a philosophy of doing nothing. If, if you are prepared to not engage with young people and not give them information and let them discover it by themselves without doing, and I, and I see it personally as a, as, a, as a duty that I've got as a police officer to, to introduce them to the harms and the potential harms and to enable them to make better um, choices, then I'm, I'm doing my job and I know that by virtue of me doing that, that a very large majority of them will not come to my notice. They won't come to the notice of the youth aid staff that are around the country. Over the last 10 years, recorded offending, and I know this is around apprehension data, but the same level of apprehensions has sat, in fact in 2006 we probably had the lowest rate of youth offending um, for the last 10 years. So in the context of a rising population, it would look as though, now there are stories within stories, and we can talk about violent crime against the rest of the crime, but certainly the overall rate has remained very stable, very stable indeed, against a rising population increase. Are we being effective? Uh, um, I think the jury's still out. Despite the evidence pointing to the ineffectiveness of class-based programmes, Ross Bell from the Drug Foundation says he wouldn't want to see them stopped. I think in a black and white world we should be doing everything based on good evidence and, and uh, the evidence of effectiveness of programmes and we shouldn't be doing programmes that are ineffective. But I wouldn't get rid of drug education. I think while um, the evidence around behaviour change isn't very strong. The evidence around raising awareness and knowledge um, is good and I think that there is value uh, in itself that people having knowledge about drugs um, is a good thing to have. You know, us for example, the Drug Foundation provides information um, over our website and through mobile phones and, and, and through other ways of, of getting good, honest, factual information out to people. And we think there's value in doing that alone and we, we hope um, that equipping people with good information means that they will make good decisions, um, but that's only a hope. But Professor Caswell says questions need to be asked about whether sticking with the same old approach is the best use of resources. What are the most cost-effective ways to make change? And there is a lot of evidence around alcohol, for example, about the importance of policy changes that we could see happening in New Zealand, we need to see happening in New Zealand, one of them being to address the marketing environment. And this would be a much more cost-effective way than having a series of small-scale provision of alcohol education in the classroom. Ready? Here you go. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, start. Kind of like Open your eyes, lovely. At Kapiti College, the principal, Tony Kane, watches students at a taiko drum practice. A far less enjoyable part of the job is dealing with drug infringements. I don't think it's a huge issue, but it's, it's a constant issue in the sense that it's prevalent in every community and we're no different. And you know it's out there and it's really frustrating um, that it's out there and it's really frustrating when you see a, a, a promising kid starting to slip. I've had a child say to me, yeah, I'm smoking dope regularly, four times a week she said, and uh, it's not doing me any harm. And you know, despite all the evidence her attendance was slipping, her grades were slipping, she was getting into conflict at home 
a whole range of things, but she was just she was just in total denial about it, and that's that's really frustrating and really difficult to do anything about because until the kid recognises it. The school's guidance counsellor Fiona Wallace also sees the effects of cannabis use. It's a certainly a far more potent drug than it ever was uh, 20 years ago, 10 years ago even, and uh, remains in the body for a month or more. How it affects a developing brain is, is absolutely devastating, and the kids just don't realise how severe it is on them and their functioning. She says many young people now expect drugs and alcohol to be part of their lives. I think the thing that I perceive mostly and sadly, is the acceptance around um, that as an adolescent they are more likely to try drugs and alcohol, which was not a perception that certainly was there when I was at school. Uh, I mean, I'm talking, you know, <laughs> not centuries, but, you know, a good, uh, <laughs> a good while back. So... Um, yeah, I think there is that worry that it's they themselves come with a perception that it's okay to have a session every now and then. They don't realise or understand the true impact of having cannabis in their system. And certainly it is cannabis that is the major um, drug here that is at fault and, and affecting our youth. 16-year-old Alex says drugs are one of the challenges of high school. That's actually the challenge, I suppose, of going to college, is being able to say no, when, even though sort of it's just freakly how it just happens. But sometimes you do just get into the wrong sort of wrong group without... and you Because all you really want is when you're at college is just friends and to have a secure group. And if, you, if, if your friends happen to be involved in drugs and you don't believe in it, it's hard you could just to walk away because then you're not exactly going to walk away and then be lonely. A lunchtime practice of the Pacific Group at William Colenso High School in Napier. The school's principal, Mark Cleary, is aware that drugs are a regular feature of some of his students' lives. I've found in my 20-odd years as a principal, um, in, in this, well, no, 20 years in the administration of the school in Napier, that we have a period around Easter where there's an upsurge in, in drug use, and that's directly related to the availability on the streets. But he's another who believes drug education programmes have their limits. The DEAR programme is popular and, and is well used and the teachers and, and students enjoy taking to come up with a really strong anti-drug message. There is, appears to me, a good understanding of, of the, the impact of drug taking amongst young people. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to change behaviours. When it comes to students and drug use, many schools talk about zero tolerance. Mark Cleary rejects that approach. We don't have a zero tolerance approach. Um, I think we're realistic in our view that the, there's, there's a significant amount of drug use amongst young people throughout New Zealand. Zero tolerance supplies that there will be an exclusion from the school. Um, I don't think New Zealand society can afford to have a significant group of young people not in school because of drug use. The head of the school's student support department, Jane Bevan-Hunt, says the ethos of William Colenso is to provide a wraparound service to keep students at school. I don't think it's necessarily a, a sign of the difficulties in the school. It's the ethos, the culture of this place. But obviously there must be people leaving that you wanted to keep in the school. Um, it's the same in any school. In, in, every school has uh, students that um, are shaky. Some schools are more quick to get rid of them. We're very slow to get rid of our kids. 
One programme operating in the school is specifically aimed at Māori students who make up a large part of the role. Kane Tafai runs a youth leadership programme. The programme is based around an old proverb which, which talks about preparing for the future. Which basically means um, while the old net is cast aside, the new net is cast out fishing. And basically what we're doing is we're, we've chosen young Māori boys from Marainui who we see with potential and leadership qualities and um, yeah, just help them to find their way, basically. He says anyone on the programme must stick to three rules. No drugs, no gangs, no violence. For me, if you're affiliating to a gang, well, then you're not a leader. You know what I mean? You're part of a flock or you're a follower. And that's, I mean, that's not a bad thing. That's just what you've chosen to do. Whereas what I would like the boys that I deal with to step above that and to um, pick self first and foremost, family, you know, which boils down to pretty much everything in their Māori tonga. You know, drugs and gangs and that are tools that make life harder. You know, drugs being a major one because it's a substance. So therefore, if we can take that part out of the system, it makes the, the process of, of uh, living up to a better life for themselves easier. the school's Year 13 students, Delina, won a recent smoke-free rock quest award with her song, A Shadow Beneath. For some of the students who are part of Kane Tafai's leadership programme, living in the shadow of drugs, gangs and violence has been part of their upbringing. The youngest boy on the course is only 13 years old. Yeah, I just remember my dad had all his weed and my sisters were counting his money. And I was sitting at the table and I said, oh, it was just completely normal for me. Oh, I've been around this since I was born. Screw up with it, and I thought one day, well, when I was just a little wannabe gangster, thought I might try it out, try to be like the rest of the family and all the mates, and yeah, I did. <coughs> but the good thing was I didn't get hooked on it, so I was off it easy. He says the programme has prompted him to think about his future. I just want something to say, my family look at me in a good way. I just don't want to be like all the other uncles, you know, dumb job, I want to be one that they look at to look to as well, and all the nephews, and maybe some kids. <laughs> These students say they also value the opportunity provided by the leadership programme. I didn't want to get kicked out of school because I thought, oh, you know, just getting kicked out of school isn't worth it. You know, maybe I could get a better education and a job and all of that. Well, people join gangs because they need a family to go to because maybe they don't have a family at home. They need someone to relate to. If you have a bunch of Māori men who relate to each other, who want to do their work, then they're all so high. It's just you need you need some a group of people to be able to push you. It's hard to do it on your own. A member of the school's board of trustees, Trish Gledhill, says one of the things that low-decile schools like William Colenso have to deal with is that they're seen as attracting difficult kids. On top of that, she says, it also tends to take students who've been kicked out of other schools. We have to make sure that we also reframe it to, to being a school that is particularly responsive and you've seen the support services that are around here and the range of programs from prevention through to intervention. And as we said earlier, these are, these are the sorts of programs and responses that benefit all kids. It's not just kids that are coming through with significant problems. 
Trish Gledhill, who's also the director of the Kinner Families and Addiction Trust, says there are other good reasons for keeping those problem students in school, particularly those from homes where they've been exposed to a whole range of drug use from infanthood. It does certainly impact on potential. There's, there's no way around that. But we have another opportunity at adolescence. We have a good opportunity in terms of brain development then. And we have an opportunity when we have young people, if we can keep them in schools, where they're exposed in a different environment with different adults and with different opportunities for a significant part of their waking hours. So we have got some opportunities to give it a, give it a go, not, notwithstanding that it's pretty hard work. <laughs> The Ministry of Education prefers schools to treat drug offences by students as a health rather than a disciplinary issue. Senior Manager Jim Grenning points to the latest figures for suspensions and stand-downs at their lowest in 10 years as a sign that schools are increasingly doing so. If schools put up a brick wall and say, you've been caught with this, you're gone, let's not think about it, then, then I think that in all due respects they're going to be kidding themselves. There are times when schools stand down students for any number of issues but our, our real preference is that this is an issue that they should treat as a health issue. It's not an issue that belongs entirely in the school. It's a community issue. It's a New Zealand-wide issue. And if they're aware of that and they're treating it that way, then they've got a, a much greater chance to be successful in how they're dealing with those kids. School trustee Trish Gledhill says that's not always an easy guideline to follow. The ministry obviously wants kids to stay in schools and wants to decrease the suspension rates and exclusion rates and we're very mindful of that and we want to do that too. It doesn't always give you a lot of um, material or, or real help about it. At the end of the day the board has to make their own decision. The president of the Secondary Principals Association, Peter Gall, agrees that more schools are now taking a different approach to drug infringements by students. It is not a matter of there being uh, less involvement by students with drugs at all, rather a different approach by schools. The stats will, you know, they'll make what, of the stats what they wish. Um, however, you know, the anecdotal evidence suggests that uh, the drug situation is not easing uh, whatsoever out there in, in schools and communities. Mr Gall says also at the forefront of concerns is the culture of binge drinking among young people. We deal with the aftermath quite often on a, on a Monday or a Tuesday. Uh, there are situations in our schools that, that arise uh, because of what happened in the weekend and you know, innumerable times that we, you know, our staff are picking up the pieces from weekend parties. Another Friday night drinks. At Kapiti College, Year 12 student Alex says drinking at the weekend is a regular activity for most of her classmates. I remember talking to my mum about it and for her she could never remember they, them sort of ever drinking being an issue and because now it sort of is every Monday morning it's always sort of laughs about what people got up to in the weekend because they were so out of it or so drunk or something and it just seemed people become completely different people when they're under the influence of things like that and I mean my mum never really remembered having like that just sort of becoming a different person like that because it never was they found that it's almost like they had other things to do and they could be entertained easier whereas now with all the new technology it's like we have to find it's not like we just going out for like a tramp as a group would be really boring because now we've got technology sort of like lifted our expectations of what like entertainment is and so we have to like find other measures to make us more and like make our weekends more entertaining, whereas I think back then when there wasn't, you couldn't just sit in front of a Game Boy, you had to find your own way of being entertained. Fellow students Kiwa, Liv and Nick agree. 
it does seem to be the weekend normal. Like it's replaced old movie night. It's now oh let's go around to so and so's house and have a, some drinks. Do you think parents sort of are quite lenient? Like they'll give their kids a couple of drinks, but they just don't expect their kids to get like trolleyed. Drinks would be quite a few drinks, I suppose, to get drunk. Or I don't know just to have a few mates, and I think the intention is to have a good time. And I know if that requires getting drunk in some people's minds. Guidance counsellor Fiona Wallace says there seems to be a growing expectation among young people that 14 is the age when they should be able to start drinking. The principal, Tony Kane, despairs about the widespread use of alcohol among young people. People are talking a lot about binge drinking culture and it's, and, uh, and it's absolutely right. It's extraordinarily difficult to do things about it when it is so easy for them to get alcohol. And I guess at the time I, I was probably thinking dropping the drinking age to 18 probably is simply acknowledging reality. But it was a bad idea because it simply dropped the entire set of ages. There is no problem whatever in the kids getting alcohol. I know the kids can get alcohol pretty much whenever they like. Ross Bell from the Drug and Alcohol Foundation says while there is real fear in the community about drugs, alcohol is viewed quite differently. I really struggle with this society not getting that alcohol is causing so many more problems than illegal drugs. Yet we don't get up in arms around alcohol. In fact, we let it be sold from a whole lot of places. We let it be advertised and marketed through a whole lot of means. Our national sports heroes um, are sponsored by liquor companies. There's a local sports field near where I live and the club is sponsored by a major beer brand. And on Saturday morning when the six-year-olds are playing rugby, they have beer messages um, all, all around them. And a few years ago we, we lowered the purchase age for alcohol to make it more accessible to young people. And I'm surprised that we've let all of this happen. We, we have no problem with with these messages around let's get tough on drugs. Well, let's get tough on alcohol. Sally Caswell says the deeply embedded nature of alcohol consumption is the main reason why classroom-based programs about alcohol are ineffective. She says rather than just teaching a subject, they're trying to change entrenched behaviours that are consistently reinforced by wide availability, easy access and peers and family, not to mention persuasive marketing. Gorgeous women. Sally Caswell says TV ads like this give a consistent message that alcohol is associated with fun and having a good time and nothing about the negatives. She believes the way alcohol is marketed is inappropriate. It only emphasises positive impacts of alcohol. It doesn't give a balanced overall picture about what alcohol can do. It's inappropriate because it has been shown very clearly in research to impact on young people particularly in terms of their intentions to drink earlier, their drinking at earlier ages, and the amounts that they drink once they start drinking. She says what's needed is a strong-willed government to drastically reduce the marketing of alcohol. That, she says, would have a much greater impact than any drug education programme. The programme was written and presented by Gail Woods. It was first broadcast in September.